everyone. Welcome back to Songs on the Brain with Phoenix Heart. I'm so excited to be sharing with you guys my interview with co-author of the book Your Brain on Art, Susan Maximin, who is also the founder and executive director of the International Arts and Minds Lab, which is a center for applied neuroaesthetics at John Hopkins University. Um, this book was really, really inspiring and also just so interesting to read because it combines so many of the different things I'm interested in, arts and science, um, and basically offers proof of how our brains and bodies transform when we participate in the arts, how the arts can help improve our health and build stronger communities. And basically that the arts, be it painting, dancing, or music are essential to our lives. I want to thank Susan again for taking the time to talk with me. And without further ado, let's get into the questions. Um, I wanted to know, I guess, first, what was your uh, your goal in writing this book? And what what inspired you? What led you to write, to start writing a book? So in 2017, I... Um, had started a relationship with the Aspen Institute um, to develop something called the Neuro Arts Blueprint. And this was, it was and is to build the field of neuro arts. So how our brain and body change on arts and aesthetic experiences and how that can be translated into practices in health, well-being, learning. What are the policies that are needed? What are the educational changes? What kind of research? How do you bring this very beautiful um, community of anthropologists and psychologists and neuroscientists and all these public health folks, how do you bring them together? Which if you think about that, that's a Herculean task. It's mm, going to take, yeah. you know, it'll take 10 years. Um, and at the same time, I really believed that the research was shovel ready. We were ready to really do this and to get it out to the general public. Mm -hmm. So I had met Ivy Ross about the same time and we started to pal around and uh, we had a salon in her home where we invited uh, she's so funny she'll say it was like the Noah's Ark of artists and psycho and psychologists and, mm. and neuroscientists like to each of everything <laughs> and we asked them if the arts had ever impacted their lives in some way and hours later people were telling us what I consider to be Shakespearean stories of tragedy and loss and joy and redemption and renewal. And it was amazing. And at the end of that, I said to Ivy, I want to write this book for the general public because we know a lot. We don't know everything, but we know a lot from all these different fields and we can't wait. We really need to start sharing this with you know, the people that are outside of academia that are mm. outside of these places, because Arts are accessible, they're immediate, and they're affordable. And and we named them to, so made them so rarefied that we think, you know, you have to go to, you know, a huge concert hall and pay a hundred dollars, or we've or we've overpriced it, or we've mythologized it, where if you're if you're not good at art, if you're not proficient, you shouldn't do it. We're shamed about mm. that. And so we she said, I'll do it with you. I'd love to do it. This is the book I've been waiting for. And so we went on that journey and it really took us about four years to write the book. Wow. And so we started before COVID and it came out this March. 
March 2023. And um, I think the timing was really right because I think when COVID sent us to our rooms to really think about our lives and to really have time to think about what matters to us and what we need to feel whole, what I think we all realize is that we were missing something. Mm. And the arts and aesthetics are something that we've now named, but the truth of the matter is throughout humanity, it's how we lived our lives. You know, indigenous cultures live this way. Um, they don't have a name for art because it's ritual and tradition and song and dance and trawling and doodling. And, you know, we've modernized that, but those things are still the things that make us feel whole. Mm. And they, and now we know they cure us. They help us. They keep us in balance. They do all these things neurophysiologically that we never have allowed for since the industrial revolution, where we've kind of moved them aside. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, and so for someone of like, let's say general public or that isn't familiar with these terms, like how would you define, I mean, I know you, you do it in the book and by the way, I really, really loved, um, the book, but, um, how would you, how would you describe it? Like neuroesthetics or neuro arts? So the, 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 the neuroesthetics is the science of studying arts and aesthetic experiences, and that's highly interdisciplinary. So we really think about all of the different um, disciplines and, and fields that can come together to provide insight. And I think of it as very solution science oriented. So what problems are we trying to solve for? So let's take an example. Um, Parkinson's. Parkinson's is a disease where dopamine isn't produced at the levels that you need to function, yeah. motor, motor function, um, some cognitive skills. There's tremors and um, often there's sleep um, disturbances with Parkinson's and it's a neurodegenerative disorder. So it progresses over time. But what we've learned is that dancing improves gait, improves sleep, improves cognition, and also improves mood. And the more you dance, we now know, um, so there's this term called dose and dosage, um, the better your symptom relief is, and the slower the progression of the disease. That's extraordinary. And so the science is helping us understand that. The field is called neuro arts, and that's what we're trying to build. Um, mm. More research, better on-ramps for practitioners. And that could be people that are doing rehabilitation, neurology, psychology, psychiatry, also all the creative arts therapies, but even people in communities that are using the arts to build more capacity in a community. So how do you build this field? Mm. How do you get more funding? How do you get more policy? And then how do you share this information in a broader way? Um, and so that's really, that's really the way I talk about it. And, and, um, and like other fields that are, you know, you know, women's health is a new field. Um, mm. sadly, um, bioethics is basically a new field. Um, computer science is not that old of a field, right? And so yeah. neural arts is a new field. And, and what are the tent poles for building that field? Okay, very cool. I wasn't, I wasn't kind of, I, I wasn't sure how to distinguish both. So that, that really clarified it. Um, we've well, I guess I had a few it. questions about like specific parts of the book. Um, just like quotes that I found really interesting and that I hope 
maybe we could expand on a little. Um, like the first one was, uh, it was written that arts and aesthetics can literally rewire your brain. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And um, having, I'm taking a psychology class this semester and we talked about, like we did a very uh, brief intro to neuroscience and like we talked about the phases of development where your brain is more plastic. So like ages zero to two and then adolescence. And so I was wondering if that statement was like more true during the phases of development versus like once you're an adult. So the, the greatest thing about neuroplasticity is that um, it doesn't stop, right? Mm -hmm. And the more you use your brain, the more plastic it is, the more neural pathways you're creating. But just to give you kind of a, like an overview of how this works, um, you're born with a hundred, over a hundred billion neurons. So you come into this world ready to learn. Um, and the only way that you can learn um, and, ch and change your physiology is how you bring the world in. And so, um, you know, and that happens through your sensory systems and your sensory systems are like, I'm kind of a nerd geek around sensory systems mm -hmm. because they're so crazy amazing. Um, you know, like you have over 4 million um, touch receptors in your body. So think about that, you know, you're touching something, it goes through the thalamus, through the somatosensory cortex, mm -hmm. and it's releasing, washing your brain with neurotransmitters. And if you're holding somebody's hand, like your mom's hand or yeah. somebody that you love, um, oxytocin is just like flooding your system. And so your body's changing really fast. Um, you know, sound transmits at like three milliseconds in three milliseconds. So sound you're 60% water. So sound resonates through you basically instantly. Yeah. So think about good sound and bad sound, you know, I mean, sound is used for torture um, mm. in, in its worst case scenario, but it also is instantly soothing, especially autobiographical music or music that really moves you in some way. So your senses bring the world in and it's those most salient sensorial experiences um, that create um, the synaptic trafficking or transmission that connects the neurons so builds them together yeah. and then creates the neural pathways and so your environments the way you put your where you put yourself to build these experiences or where parents bring their children the experiences that children have shape their brains mm -hmm. and they change as you have these different experiences and so you know that is amazing if you think about how we have agency to really shape our brains by where we choose to be and what sensorial experiences we're having and what those connections are. So as a maker or a beholder, you have that ability. Mm -hmm. um, and like speaking of like music and sound, I was curious to understand like the difference between, for example, like you can listen to music and it'll like evoke feelings in you because it's like a song that you love a lot or it's a song that reminds you of like someone that you care about but there's also like the idea of music in terms of like sound frequencies and like how specific frequencies can be more soothing and like I was just curious I guess if there's difference between the benefits of like those types of positive responses to music kind of yeah yeah so that's a great question um and I think you know a lot of times it's Yes. And like, I don't think one is better or worse. I think mm. they're different 
and they do different things. Like all the art forms do different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so autobiographical music that you're describing or personal music that you have either a history with or reminds you of something um, activates the hippocampus. Um, and that's a that's sort of like a memory um, holder. And that can bring instant um, memories. Um, it can also, and they and they may not always be good memories, right? It's a, a piece of music yeah. could, could really make you sad because it's a song that reminds you of something that happened. Um, but it's instantly able to help you evoke that memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it has its own pitch. It has its own rhythm. So it does have the same kind of characteristics as sound. But sound is something that usually doesn't attach to a um, cultural reference or an autobiographical yeah. reference. And so um, I've seen some really beautiful sound experiences that use different um, uh, hertz. Um, 40 hertz is a, is a frequency that's believed to be um, very resonant. Um, and that translates into oftentimes different um, tonal qualities. So like C or G and those different tonal qualities change your are vibratory. So they change mm. the vibrations in your, in your, in your body. Wow. And 40 Hertz is, is seen to be the same Hertz as the vibration of the earth. And so that would make sense that we want to vibrate to the same Hertz that is in our natural world. That's mm. kind of a form of equilibrium. Yeah. And you can translate that to when you're in nature for 15 minutes, when you're in that vibration, you're not, you're not actively knowing that you're at 40 Hertz, but you do know that you're, you're experiencing this natural, that's one of the things that you're experiencing, right? Is a vibrational experience. Mm. And you know, that homeostasis happens in about 15 minutes when you're in, in nature, when you're not distracted, when you're really just in nature. And so I think sound vibration and sound can be really amazing. Um, I mean, I did this great um, experiment with a program called Chromasonics, where they made vibration, color, and color vibration, and no cultural context, just sound and light. And mm-hmm. and when you really your body really absorbs that, what we found, and and they're doing some testing right now with neuro neuroscientists and neurologists to see what's what's the physiological impact but what we experienced was the sort of cleansing of our sort of system where we came out very radically present and i think that's an interesting like can light and sound really change our physiology out of a mm-hmm. cultural context and and could that be used for you know daily practices and other ways to just renew us revive us um you know, mm-hmm. the lower cognitive load, which we all kind of, you know, we all reach a threshold in cognitive load every day. And so yeah. can you recalibrate that? Mm-hmm. And so it was a combination of sound and, and light, if I understood correctly. Okay. Exactly. Interesting. Wow. And did you like, was that an experiment that you had conducted or you were like participating in? So, no, this is a pro, a, a, a uh, I guess it's the company called okay. Chromatics. Oh wow! And they're in Venice, California, and but their goal is to have these. Um, this this one's called Satellite One, but the goal is to have these in cities all over the world, so that mm. you can go in and in 15 minutes, 
really recalibrate. So there's, and there's a lot of things like that happening where the use of technology mm. um, is helping to disseminate and scale these kinds of practices, preventions, interventions, you know, depending upon the use. And so I think there's real hope for reinventing the way we think about arts and aesthetics for our health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Um, and then there was a section that you had written and it was called opening the box um, in like restoring mental health. Um, and like for me, I kind of really resonated with that, uh, I guess, statement in terms of arts because songwriting was something and like music was something that was very helpful for me. Um you know, in times of like more difficult times. And so I guess like emotionally, I always kind of understood that, that it helped me, but I, I wanted to kind of understand neurologically how that happens. I guess, I know it's complicated, but I guess if you could provide any kind of insight on that, if it's like my brain is like reassociating negative things with like a positive thing or yeah, I guess just yeah. wanted to better so- understand. I, I think there's a couple of things happening um, when you are actively engaging in songwriting or or music, and it's in specifically around um, uh, mental well mental well being or mm-hmm. changing a mood state, right? And I think one of them we tapped into a little bit, which is this idea that vibrations change your physiology. So you're changing the vibrational um, capacity. The other thing that's happening is your frontal your frontal lobe um, is the part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, where it, it's, inter- it's, the, it's the newest part of the brain relative mm-hmm. to like brainstem, but it's the part of the brain that you can be hyper judgmental and hypercritical, yeah. but you can also turn that off and be um, non-judgmental and really open up sort of a state of flow or creativity mm-hmm. where you're able to really um, change the temporal quality. So time stands still, right? And you're in a liminal space between what you were feeling and what you're going to feel and you're moving in that area. And I think when you're writing music and you're in a flow, you're writing, you're writing music, it's interesting poetry and um, music activate the same part of the brain Mm -hmm. but when you're in flow you 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 are really outside of those um, cognitive states and then you're able to transition or or transform or um, you know move into another state of mind because you've changed that neural that neural pathways and the other thing that happens is when you are quiet and you have that time to really let your brain sit um, the default mode network is also coming online and your mind wandering, you're, you're reflecting on what things mean for you. And so you're allowing yourself to kind of make determinations to have agency and advocacy over what you are, what you're actually thinking about or what you want to do. We also know there's a great researcher named James Pennebaker. He's in Austin, Texas, and he's retired mostly now, but he's done some really great work in just writing down what you're feeling. And that could be in the form of writing a song, Mm. um, but it could just be in reflecting on what you're feeling. And that two things happen. One is it lowers cortisol, which is one of the things that's making you feel bad. Um, And it all, or or other hormones that are really 
feeling that you're not creating enough serotonin or dopamine, but it also lowers cognitive load. And that's another really important thing. So just the act of writing things down can be really healing as well. In terms of like releasing whatever is kind of over. Yeah. And it, it literally allows you to, to let that go, you know, to, mm. you're, if you're stuck and, you know, there's some really beautiful somatic work too. And, you know, I, I was on a call earlier today um, with someone who works with indigenous cultures and um, in Africa. And she reminded me that um, sh- shaking or moving or humming or dancing or drumming are all these highly somatic experiences to get out, literally get out what is stuck inside of you. And, and, and oftentimes in highly under-resourced um, communities, they've been prose- prosecuted, they've been oppressed, they've been abused. And so how do you get that? How do you live with that and getting that out of you through music, songwriting, movement, is really um, something that we've learned to talk about things some, but talking is not the same thing as moving things through your body. And Mm. I think that's another thing that the arts do that nothing else really does. I mean, I don't know if you've ever done this where, you know, you're feeling bad and then you just turn on a song and you dance and you feel better. You're moving, you're literally moving things through your body. Mm -hmm. And the art is kind of like a catalyst to allow for that. It is the catalyst. It's the a, catalyst. A mm. uh, and I think that's amazing. I think that's really sort of extraordinary. And we know, you know, we're starting to understand more about what's happening neurophysiologically in, in that work too. Mm. And so that's comes full circle back to one of your earlier questions about neuroplasticity and, 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 you know, the arts are one of the only things I can think of that engages neural pathways, respiration, cardiovascular system, immune system, um, muscular system. Like, think about that. Like if you're just taking a pill and that doesn't mean that that pill is good or bad, but it's not engaging all of those things. Right. And so yet at the same time, we, we haven't really allowed for the amazing generosity of these experiences that also help us find meaning. And I think meaning making, is also really important in, in understanding ourselves. And, you know, when you write a poem or a, a song, and then you look at that, you are, you, ha- you may not have, you would not have maybe known that until you got it out and then reflected on it. I, I collage and I usually, people say, oh, do you collage every day? I'm like, no, <laughs> I collage when I'm stuck and I don't know how I feel, but I'm really feeling something. And then I, I call them scraps. I pull out scraps, yeah. I put something together. And then I look at it and I go, oh, that's what it is. Because it allows my unconscious to be able to share something that's beyond words or before words. And then I can put words to it. And so symbol and metaphor are really important for helping us find our voice and to find what's really important to us. Wow. Very true. <laughs> um. Okay. And I guess on a more, on another note, um, the part about amplified learning, um, it's written that basically when experiences are more salient, it induces like stronger synaptic connections and helps us, like it strengthens our capacity to learn. And I really 
agree, I mean, I agree with that. I, I know it's proved with science. <laughs> I agree with that as a, as a student and a learner. I guess I was curious to know how you think schools and education could incorporate arts in better ways to help students learn and help with our memory. And Well, you know, I think educators are extraordinary. Um, but the systems that they're in um, repress the arts or they mm. take the arts out. Now, recess is being taken out of schools and even sports are being a pay to play. And I think that we've really, you know, we we pay for what we value. And in our country, for learning, the arts have been incredibly marginalized. And there's so many easy ways that the arts can be used um, in aesthetic experiences like, hey, how about windows in classrooms? You know, let's just start there. Um, you know, not having to sit in a chair for eight hours a day, making sure that there is um, these collaborative spaces to be able to work together, to be able to, to act out, mm -hmm. to be able to use sensorial things. Like if you want to learn about something active immersive experiences which are aesthetic and arts artful are the way to do that you know and we know now that by the time kids are in third grade this nasa did this study um when kids are two and three years old 90 some percent of kids on nasa tests are perceived as geniuses by the time they're in third grade because genius is about creativity about figuring out something different it's not about iq what you can remember it's about new ideas but by the time kids are in third grade, it's like 4%, 3% of the same kids wow. are seen as geniuses. And so we're told, we, we tell kids, you know, if you're not good at it, you're not creative, you shouldn't do it. But we define creative as an end product, not a process. Mm. And we shame kids and we demoralize them. And so I think it really starts with getting leadership in schools to understand the power of this. And you know, it's it's certainly true that synaptic connections work better. Myelination is stronger when you have arts in schools, and myelination is the kind of conduit oh, yes. around, right? But also, we know that enriched environments, so novelty, surprise, um, actually increases cerebral cortex, literally makes your brain bigger. And so why wouldn't we do that? Like, it's it's, it's it doesn't make any sense. And, mm -hmm. and at the same time, you know, it takes so long to make those changes in these systems that want kids to be solving the future problems, but we're kind of tying their hands behind them back, blindfolding them and saying, yep, solve this really big intractable problem. So mm. um, I think schools, and, and also from a preventative point of view, if you want to avoid downstream issues in mental health, in physical health, you have to start with very young kids and you could eliminate a lot of those downstream issues by starting with that what we talked about earlier, helping kids build strong neuroplasticity so they are more resilient. They do have greater capacity for conversation, for collaboration, for character, for community building. You want to do that when, when we're young mm -hmm. and you can learn it when you're older, but you've lost so much human resource. And I think that that's really a, um, a, just a huge loss to humanity. And in terms of like these kind of, I guess, ways that we view education or the kind of more like that the arts are marginalized, has the book been well received, like by more rigid structures, you know, that are in place or? 
Yeah, you know, it has. And I think I think the reason is we're not preaching in the book. We're just having a con- we're having a conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Ivy and I were invited to the Getty Museum in in California to talk with 400 school superintendents who are, their job is to figure out how to get arts in schools through this thing called Proposition 28. And so they have money to do it, but they need to figure out how to do it. And so, um, you know, we're talking with schools and educational systems um, and leadership all over the world. And, you know, I think, I think we're now at a point where the science is showing how clearly important this is but we now have to really figure out how you create systems change. And so I think there's a much bigger opening and people are saying, oh no, that's not true. It's now the question is, how do you do it? And mm-hmm. how, do, how do you change? You know, How do you turn the Titanic around? Um, and it takes a little bit of time, but I think we need to move fast and that's important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read that you were the founder of the Arts and Minds Lab at John Hopkins is that I guess one of the ways that you try to make it kind of a try to solve the how question or very much so um so in 2007 um we had a donor who came to Hopkins and and wanted to make it a sizable gift um but she had um and to understand how the brain works but she also wanted Hopkins to include how arts change our brains and bodies. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there weren't a lot of people really studying that in a serious way. And um, to Hopkins credit, they said, okay. And they invited me to think about how we would do that. And that's really how the work got started at Hopkins. And um, she's still our donor. Um, I credit her with really being somebody who has allowed this field to grow really dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's what we do in our lab is it's an applied lab. We're really interested in how do you make these things happen? And then the NeuroArts Blueprint, which is part of the lab, is really about how you create systems change. How do you do that? How do you disseminate? How do you scale? How do you evaluate? And so um, book coming out um, has really you know been a great catalyst for moving that forward because it's the book is really accessible and but I think there's a lot of work to be done mm-hmm. and I guess it's it's an actual lab so like what are some of the different um, studies that are ongoing right now so we're, we work uh, in a whole lot of different sectors um, we've done a lot of work in youth mental health and we're mm-hmm. doing some work right now where we're looking at art as data for an art and youth really driving the decisions about what are they need for mental health and well-being. And so that's a study that we're doing right now that's really exciting. We've done work um, on this idea of in- enriched environments. Um, we've done work on understanding um, the nature of uh, enriched environments and what are the elements, what are some of the principles around that. Um, we've also funded some work for researchers that are doing work with Alzheimer's and music and Parkinson's and dance um, and uh, virtual reality and the way virtual reality um, can be used for creativity. Um, so, but we're really interested in, we developed a model called impact thinking, which is a scientific model to be able to study the arts. So we kind of kick the tires on that to try to really help to build an interdisciplinary model that includes dissemination and scaling. Wow. (laughs) 
it's 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 a it's amazing work. I love it. I really I just love it. Sounds amazing. Um, and I guess my last question was in terms of social prescription. Um, it's like a term that's mentioned a lot, and I guess I kind of wanted to know what your what your you know definition or view of that was, and how that's incorporated in um, the arts and minds lab. It's it's really important. Um, arts on prescription, social prescribing. Um, that work has started um, in Australia, in England, and um, and also a little bit in Canada. Mm -hmm. And those countries all have social medicine, right? So they have um, healthcare systems that pay for um, writing a prescription for going to the theater or dancing or um, you know being able to use museums um, and. Um, and and that has been really important for mental well-being, um, for social isolation, for thinking about people with Alzheimer's and social connection. And all that has been really important. Mm -hmm. What we've been trying to do in this country, and a lot of that work has been really driven by um, Jill Sankey at University of Florida, where she's, and, and also Tasha Golden, who is the director of research in, in, in my lab at Hopkins, we're really looking at what are the what are some ways to operationalize that in the United States. Yeah. And it's a little harder because of the payment system in this country for healthcare. So healthcare providers, for the most part, don't pay much for um, social prescribing or arts on prescription. What they pay for sometimes is creative arts therapy, but that's more of an, an intervention. And that's hit or miss. It's not mm -hmm. as, it's not as broad, but social prescribing is really saying, you know, how do you use this in your local community and who can prescribe that? It could be a physician, but it could also be a social worker. Mm -hmm. It could be um, a community link worker. It could be um, um, nurse practitioner. It could be um, a psychologist. And so how can we start to um, embed this idea of arts in the communities and, and, and how can that not, not only be when you go to the doctors, but how can you think about it in your library, in your mm -hmm. museum? And so it's really starting to pick up speed and, and finding how to operationalize that at a hyper-local level. The Blueprint has something called Neuro, the Community Neuro Arts Coalitions where we're working with cities to bring all of the arts folks together and arts organizations together and researchers and funders to say, these are problems in your community that you've identified. How can we use the arts to really support that? And so that's a form of social prescribing. Um, so it's, it's exciting. Um, I think just recently there was a study of over 35 countries that are using social prescribing in some way. So developing these learning communities of how it's yeah. working and what's working. But there need, does need to be goodwill by the policymakers who are allocating the resources yeah. for that. And so there's a lot more work that still needs to be done there. Mm -hmm. In five yeah. years, I think the world's going to look very different. Mm -hmm. So as you're coming out of school and you're moving into your career, there will be jobs that are for neuro arts practitioners, for arts on prescription, you know, for these kinds of muse museums that have not just art education folks, but arts and health folks. And mm -hmm. so I can see a world that is really beginning to 
shift towards this in a really beautiful way. Um, healthcare systems that are using narrative medicine, yeah. um, writing prescriptions to go to the museum or the or a dance class or um, or arts and schools. And so where it's not so rarefied, but it's really how we live our lives. Mm-hmm. Cause I guess like looking ahead right now, I'm in an arts and sciences program. So I'm really kind of uh, combining everything. Uh, but I've always, when thinking of careers, everything just kind of felt always too restrictive. And so it's nice to hear that, you know, moving ahead, there may be more uh, interdisciplinary careers or things that, you know, combine uh, arts and science, you know? I think there are and will be and have to be. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, it's academic institutions have talked about it, but they haven't known how to do it. And that, and that is definitely changing. I'm seeing that at Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Um, it's changing in lots of institutions. And so, and I, and I think, you know, I, I talk to students all the time and I say, you know, tell me about your major and they'll say engineering and music. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and they don't want to be known as an engineer they want to be known as someone who uses engineering to solve a problem that might include music. Yeah. And so I think it's your generation that are going to rewrite the, the, the handbook for humanity mm-hmm. um, because you're, you get it. You, you're, you're, you're not, you're saying you're not going to do it the way it's been done. And that's really important. It's sort of, a, you know, it's top down, bottom bottom up sides in and I think that it's a very dynamic time right now so mm-hmm. I, I think it's critical that you know and you can see it in all different fields where there are I, I work I've worked I've done some work with um, software developers who are now taking art classes and those are the people that are programming our lives yeah. I want them to know something about humanity <laughs> right so um, yeah. and that's happening I mean they want they, they want that too it's just it hasn't been an incentive for them Mm. um until now and so i see that all changing and and that's that's you know um we talk about you know machines have sensors but we have senses and so what does humanity need that's the question and 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 what do we need from each other and it comes full circle back to these important things that we're talking about amazing well, thank you so much. I'm really happy to to hear from you and to talk with you. Yeah, thank you. And congrats on the book again. I mean, it was really, really inspiring to read and also just to learn more about all these things that I like and combining them all together. So yeah, thank you again. Thank you so much again, Susan, for taking the time to talk. And I wish you all the best with your book. And I look forward to being in touch. And yeah, I hope that everyone enjoyed the episode. And I will see you all very soon for another one. Have a great day. Mm